Hello and welcome to Guiding Assets, the flagship investment podcast for CFA Institute. In this episode, I'm joined by Jason Lamine, the founder and CEO of Lennox Park Solutions. So something that really resonated with me, Jason, and when we chatted about this in the past is your view of the importance of a dedicated DEI strategy really as a risk management exercise. And, and there, I guess there's two parts of this that, that sort of stuck with me. One is, you know, this idea about, you know, wanting to make sure that you're running your firm in a way that is diverse and, and accepting of various uh, races and sexual orientations and the like, and has good gender equality, but also just when it comes down to it, the dollars and cents of it. And, and that, that that's something that I, I'd like to sort of try to dig into a little bit today, which is if you're an asset manager out there today, the kind of time's up and around being able to not pay attention to these metrics because your clients are caring about them. So I wonder if you could talk maybe about those two things, how it can play a risk management role in the running of your firm, but also why it's a big risk that asset managers need to pay attention to, because if this is important to your clients, then maybe five years down the road, you don't, you don't have any clients. Sure. I mean, as the leader of our company, I can tell you that of all of the different reasons why you want to have a more diverse, inclusive, and equitable organization. The one I think about the most, or the prism through which I think about those issues the most, is risk. Yes, I unequivocally, and by the way, I think the research is empirical at this point, that diverse teams are more creative, more innovative, they solve the problems you know, that are complex, which is what we have in front of us today. So I, I think the jury's out there, but it's very hard to go to an asset management firm and say, you know, I know you've been doing things without, you know, with a team that isn't very diverse, but if you were, if you were to have a more diverse team, more inclusive environment, you're going to get an incremental I don't know, 50 basis points, 80, 100 basis, but who knows, right? The bottom line sense. And that's hard to, to sort of engender, you know, a real cultural change around those. I, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of reaching there because I don't know why an organization wouldn't do it. But what we do know, Mike, is that the jury's been out on that for decades. We've known that. The research has been very clear for decades. Diverse teams outperform. So, and yet we've not had any adoption. The other lens that is often looked at, and of course I pay attention to, is the social aspect. Is it the right thing to do? Does every individual have the, you know, the right to participate fairly, equitably in an industry, at a company? You know, do they have the, the, the right to have a fair shot at the same levels of success? And we know that that's not been the case. I happen to believe that they should. So of course I think about that at our firm. But the one that I spend the majority of my time thinking through is what's at stake for our company and our investors and our clients and our employees if we don't create an inclusive culture here at Lenox Park. If I can't go out and access the best talent over the next decade, what does that mean for my company? And I don't think I can access the best talent. I don't think I will be able to attract cisgender white males at straight males at our company if we don't create an environment that's inclusive for the intersectionality of the lgbtq community 
and disability and veteran status and immigrant status. So there are all of these things that are making this more relevant for everyone. So that, that's, that's really, it is top of mind for, for the allocators that we come into contact with. One, uh, one of our clients, a major foundation, uh, in a conversation I was having with the chief investment officer, he asked the question, is it unreasonable for us to have a minimum requirement for some level of diversity at an organization? If we have credible metrics that tell us not just in absolute terms how diverse your organization is, but also in relative terms, relative to your asset class, how diverse your organization is. Is it unreasonable for us to have some minimum requirement? Not saying you have to be the most diverse organization for us to allocate to you, but building into our decision-making process that you can't be in the bottom 10%. And the truth is, Mike, I don't think it's unreasonable. I don't think that, you know, when we look at what the data is now pointing to, if you are in the bottom 10% of your asset class, of your region, if 90% of, of your peers are, are, are more inclusive than you are, do you present certain risks that we're no longer willing to underwrite by investing in your organization? Is it reasonable to assume that if there are discrimination suits that are likely to happen at your firm and not the other, you know, the, the other firms? Is it unreasonable for us to assume that if there are harassment suits that happen, they're going to happen at your firm instead of a firm that has women on its leadership team? So there is now this sense of, well, the data tells us that those types of risks and I want to be careful about you know any sort of causality here, but but what the data is starting to point to, Mike, is that those types of risks, discrimination, harassment, they tend to happen when there is a disparity between how diverse the workforce is and diverse the leadership team that's meant to govern that workforce and set policies for that workforce and really has an outsized influence in creating what the culture is for that workforce. It's not unreasonable to assume that if you have more women on your leadership team, you're going to have an FMLA policy that is reflective of what a workforce wants and needs now. You're going to have affinity groups for what it means to be a person of color in an industry that is inherently not very diverse if you have people of color in your leadership team. So it's not unreasonable when we look at the data, we see where those discrimination and harassment suits pop up and it's where that broad disparity exists. So I think, you know, looking at this through the prism of risk is a major advancement in what's happening in the sector right now. Thanks for that, Jason. And, and I'd like to just get under the skin a little bit of, you, know, you give the example of a, of a major foundation that you're working with. I mentioned CalPERS off the top there. I think they've got about $440 billion in assets huge roster of sub-advisors that they work with. And so can you just kind of take us through what that looks like in terms of the, the Lennox Park score that you guys create for them? I guess maybe the first question for you is how many assets are following the Lennox Park score at this point? Like what's what's the aggregate number? Do you know? Yeah. You know, the, the aggregate number, I mean, I, I will say with all the humility I can muster up, you know, we're now approaching 5 trillion of asset owners uh, in AUM 
Right. So $5 trillion. So this is all the biggest uh, pension plans in the U.S. If you can probably think of a big pension plan, they are probably using this score now. So so for our listeners, uh, that that's why I really wanted to get you on here, is to hear about how Lennox Park is helping move this forward, but also to sort of help our listeners understand this is something that's happening. And then perhaps, I guess, with that background, Jay, you could maybe talk about what Lennox Park score captures and how it does level setting and benchmarking among asset classes, regions, and that kind of stuff. Yeah. You know, so Mike, I'm very proud of the fact that we've had amazing clients that cumulatively come up four and a half, approaching five trillion of asset owner AUM. But perhaps even more impressive is the pace. We took our first, we had our first conversation with an institutional investor in November of 2019. In three years, we've had that growth. Now, I think what we've built and developed is novel. It's different. You know, we're a fintech company. We're not an investment consultant that's doing this on the side. We're a fintech company. And so we look at all of this through the prism of building technology that helps us aggregate the data in a high integrity format efficiently. And then how do we convert that data into analytics and metrics that mean something, real accountability measures. That's our business. So happens that we're, you know, addressing the DEI issue, but still through that same prism. So the pace at which this has been adopted, I think is indicative of the fact that we showed up with something that works, but it also speaks to the fact that folks are ready to move beyond the rhetoric in which the DEI conversation has remained. It's been conversation. It's been a rehashing of principles. It's been, you know, an adoption of codes and, and ethics. All of things that, you know, a rewriting of policies, all of those are important. We've got to do those things. But we also, particularly in our industry, have to get down to brass tacks. How do we improve and how do we hold ourselves accountable for the improvement? And to date, there's been no real robust metric on how to do it. So when we set out to do this, we found ourselves in this position where we had gathered a lot of data around DEI. And because we're a technology firm, we had aggregated that data in a very, very consistent format. So very consistent about what definitions mean, very consistent about timing of certain things so that there's no apples and oranges. And when we did that, we realized that if we could hire some real horsepower around analytics, so we hired some econometricians and PhDs from the University of Texas, and we applied their knowledge to that data set and said, could we come up with a score that was statistically rigorous, but could evolve over time? Because again, diversity in itself is changing at a very fast pace. So could we build one that today, because overwhelmingly, this is what our clients are asking for today, takes into consideration factors around gender and race or ethnicity and builds a multi-factored score that we could then add factors to over time. And could we also advance beyond what we've historically looked at to indicate that a firm is diverse? In the past, we've looked at ownership. Well, if I'm the largest shareholder of Lenox Park, I'm African-American, you know, we are a diversely owned organization, but if all I was doing was hiring cisgender, straight, white, male engineers, that wouldn't mean that we're a diverse firm. And so could we move beyond 
these elements of ownership, which are still incredibly important. Ownership is a very, very important factor in indicating whether a firm builds a culture of inclusivity, but it's not the only one. So could we advance beyond ownership and look at firm leadership? Could we look at the board of an organization? Could we look at the workforce of an organization? So taking into consideration all these factors. And so we developed a scoring methodology that would do that. And what it lets us do is look at the representation of your organization and really figure out how impactful you are on an absolute basis. The score is from zero to 10, looks at gender, ethnicity. Within those two buckets, it looks at the ownership of the firm and then some specific elements within ownership. It looks at the leadership of the firm and it looks at the total workforce. And you get one high, you know, one top level score, but you're also able to look at all the subscores. How impactful is your organization with respect to gender, with respect to women in leadership positions, with respect to women of color? So it lets us look at the intersectionality of, of these uh, elements and allows us to evolve and add factors over time. So the the score itself, Mike, is something I'm very proud of, you know, that our company's been able to do. I'm very happy that our clients have been able to use it in their decision making. But perhaps the most important thing that we've developed, the benchmarks, because that's where you really meet markets where they are. We know that our industry is not diverse enough. There aren't enough women. There aren't enough people of color. There aren't enough underrepresented groups in the industry. And just because of that fact, though, doesn't mean we can't make up lofty, you know, that we should make up lofty goals about where to get. They have to be rooted in some form of data. You know, if you're looking at a public markets asset management firm, your expectations of how diverse that firm should be should be much higher than if you're looking at a real assets infrastructure private markets organization. The fact is that the labor pools for those two asset classes are vastly different. And we can talk about why they're different, but but they are different. And so our expectations of what, not giving them a pass, not saying you shouldn't improve, but just being realistic about the labor that's that's out there. So the benchmarks have proven to be really, really extraordinarily important in some of this decision-making. That's great, Jason. Thanks. Thanks for that. But one thing I would like to ask you about is Lennox Park's own experience with this, because I, I think that it's been an interesting story about kind of what you learned looking internally uh, once you started doing this work. And it's telling, I think, in terms of the, some of the consulting work that you guys do, like in terms of the things that you you had to struggle with and um, and what you learned from that process. So I wonder if you could talk a bit about that, please. Sure. It's something that I'm, <laughs> I'm quite happy to talk about now because we're doing, we've really course corrected from where we started three years ago. But course, when our score was in beta form, uh, we scored ourselves and we had enough data to create some some form of benchmarking and to, to give us an idea of where we stacked up in the industry as a technology company and as, an, as a firm that navigates in the asset management space. And so I've always, you know, my network is very diverse. When I started Linux Park, I, I built a board that was ethnically very diverse. And we, as a workforce at Linux Park, we've got a very ethnically diverse team, always have. We struggled with gender. We were able to hire women. We were not able to retain them as well as we were able to retain men. And, you know, this is something, Mike, that I knew was a challenge at our company. But I think what happens is when we make diversity this sort of monolithic umbrella issue, there are lots of convenient places to either hide or or the issue becomes so broad that it doesn't really 
mean a whole lot. And so I was sort of walking around thinking that we are a diverse firm. We are, we, you know, just look around at all the people of color. And yet we were performing in the bottom quartile in every category with respect to gender impact. That means when I looked at technology companies that had offices in Austin, Texas, we were in the bottom quartile. It means at least 75% of technology firms that were based in Austin, Texas were more gender inclusive than we were. And we were in the bottom quartile in every category. New York City, firms our size, firms our age, you know, the asset class. So what that meant is that I had to stop looking externally and pointing at the pipeline, which is what we conveniently do in our industry and say, well, there just aren't enough female engineers. There aren't enough women in our business. And I'd say, well, that may be true, but that can be true and I could still be leading the pack. And we were in fact in the bottom. And so it caused me specifically at our organization, it became the single most important thing that I focused on for two years, top priority. How do we create more gender inclusion at our, at our organization? And because, as I mentioned, I look at this through the prism of risk, I kept thinking what's at stake if we don't have an environment that's inclusive for women. So we did the hard work and without taking you through all of it, because it is hard, long work, we added a woman to our board. The third most senior person at Lenox Park today is a woman of color as our chief operating officer. We changed the way that we write our job descriptions dramatically. We completely deconstructed. We threw out the old way of doing it because we were unintentionally excluding women by not marrying what the research has told us about how men and women approach job selection. We were writing a wish list, 20 bullet points on what we wanted from our engineers. And what the research tells us, Mike, and it is empirical, women will look at 20 objectives or requirements of a job and can do 18 of them, but not two, and they won't apply. Men can do 13 and not seven, and they'll apply and figure out that they'll make it by the time it really matters. That's what the research tells us. And so when we were, I don't want to use the word lazy in sort of a pejorative way, but we were coming up with this list of 20 things that we thought we needed. And it was very easy to come up with that list. And we were excluding candidates, mostly women from, from the pool. So we now have a policy at Lenox Park where no hiring manager can have more than four or five. So Jay, what was your first job in the industry? And I, I think I know the answer to this one. And if you could go back and take yourself for coffee on your first day, what key piece of advice would you offer yourself? Oh my gosh. My first job was as, a, as an analyst in the financial institutions M&A group at Merrill Lynch in investment banking, which is where you and I met. And if I could take myself for coffee, gosh, you know, I think, and uh, you only sort of appreciate and realize this later, eventually there is a reconciliation of good, kind, smart people uh, eventually do the types of things that you want to be around. And I think what I would probably do is invest more of my time around people that met those qualifications than those we get sort of tempted to spend, you know, the deal maker, the rainmaker. And, and you learn a lot of things from, you know, people that are exceptionally good at, uh, at making good deals. But now I've been in the industry for almost three decades. It turns out that great people that are kind, smart, and have a solid moral compass end up doing the things that you want to be around. So I'd probably invest more time in those people. 
Jason, it's been really great to catch up again. Thanks for coming on the show and, and talking about the risks and opportunities of DEI. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for giving airtime to an important issue. I'm Mike Wahlberg, and this has been Guiding Assets. Mm-hmm.